Stephen Colbert used his day off from The Late Show to come to Selected Shorts and perform a short story by masterful satirist George Saunders. Why? To find out, you'll have to stick around. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Short story writer George Saunders is always looking for the ray of light. Whether writing satires about hellish theme parks or heartfelt tales about ailing octogenarians, Saunders somehow finds the good, or at any rate the imperfectly human, in his characters. The result is a catalog as funny as it is moving, as devastating as it is hopeful. Like many readers, we at Selected Shorts were drawn to Saunders' fierce, fascinating voice right away. Over the years, we've featured many stories from Saunders' collections, including the much-loved 10th of December, and even a bit of the Booker Prize-winning novel Lincoln in the Bardo. We've also been lucky enough to host the author several times at Symphony Space in New York City. When his new collection, Liberation Day, was announced, we at Shorts were quick to invite Saunders back to the theater for an evening of performance and conversation. In this hour, we're going to hear excerpts from that night. We'll also hear a Saunders favorite from our archives. If you're not yet familiar with George Saunders, his wise and wicked stories can meet you right where you are. Maybe you're a little stuck in your own head, feeling doubtful about the world or your place in it. Saunders knows all about that and might have a ray of light to send your way. He offers a kind of beam that travels directly from his sensibility into yours. Listening to him, you'll get a chance to see into his wild and ironic but very open way of seeing. And you may well take note of the generosity of spirit, the delicate subversiveness, the vibration that hums through his writing, taking a line of prose in a direction you never expected it to go. And that hum might stay with you like an earworm, making you into not necessarily a writer, but probably from here on in, a George Saunders listener and reader. First, we'll hear a story about a fretful grandfather from a somewhat alternate but recognizable reality— then, a piece about two men, a boat, and a decision that determines who they are and what they are made of. Our first story, Love Letter, was first published in The New Yorker in March of 2020. A grandfather is writing to his grandson, and we're well into it before we realize that it is a devastatingly subtle manifesto against the presidential administration of that time. Stephen Colbert was the obvious choice to perform this. The comedian, satirist, and commentator has been putting the world to rights for years on shows such as The Colbert Report and books like I Am America and So Can You. He's currently the host of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And here he is with Love Letter. Love Letter. February 22nd, 2020, hmm, dear Robbie, got your email, kid, sorry for handwriting and reply, not sure emailing is the best move considering the topic, but of course, you being nearly six foot now, your mother says, that's up to you, dear, although, you know, strange times, beautiful day here. Family of deer just now raced past your grandmother and I out on the deck holding the bright blue mugs you kindly sent at Christmas. Did simultaneous hip swivels as they sprang off towards seascape and I expect an easy meal on the golf course there. Forgive my use of initials in what follows. Would not wish to cause further difficulties for G, M, or J. Good folks all, we very much enjoyed meeting them when you stopped by over Easter. Should this get sidetracked and read by someone other than you? I think you are right regarding G. That ship has sailed. Best to let that go. M, per your explanation, does not lack proper paperwork, but did know all the while that G was lacking it, yes? And did nothing about that? I am not suggesting, of course, that she should have. But putting ourselves into their heads, the heads of the loyalists, as I think these days it is prudent to try to do, we might ask, why didn't M, again, according to them, to their way of thinking, do what she should have done? By letting someone in authority know about G, since being here is a privilege and not a right. Are we or are we not, as I have grown sick of hearing, a nation of laws, as they change the laws constantly to suit their own beliefs? 
Believe me, I am as disgusted as you are with all of this. But the world, in my ancient experience, sometimes moves off in a certain direction, and having moved, being so large and inscrutable, cannot be recalled to its previous better state. And so, in this current situation, it behooves us, I would say, to think as they think, as well as we can manage to avoid as much unpleasantness and future harm as possible. Of course, you were writing really to ask about Jay. Yes, am still in touch with the lawyer you mentioned. Don't honestly feel he would be much help at this point. In his prime, he was, yes, a prince of a guy striding into a courthouse, but he is not now the man he once was. He opposed, perhaps too energetically, the DOJ review slash ouster of sitting judges and endured much abuse in the press and his property was defaced and he was briefly detained and these days, from what I have heard, is mostly just puttering around his yard, keeping his views very much to himself. Where is Jay now? Do you know? State facility or fed? That may matter. I expect they, loyalists, would, with the power of the courts now behind them, say that although Jay is a citizen, she forfeited certain rights and privileges by declining to offer the requested info on G and M. You may recall R and K, friends of ours, who gave you for your fifth, sixth birthday that bronze Lincoln Bank. They are loyalists, still in touch, and that is the sort of logic they follow. A guy over in Aptos Village befriended a fellow at their gym, and they would take runs together and so forth, and the first guy, after declining to comment on what he knew of his new friend's voting past, suddenly found he could no longer register his work vehicle. He was a florist, so this proved problematic. R and K's take on this, a person is no patriot if he refuses to answer a simple question from his own homeland government. That is where we find ourselves. You asked if you were supposed to stand by and watch your friend's life be ruined. Two answers. One is a citizen, the other is a grandfather. You have turned to me in what must be a difficult time and I am trying to be frank. As a citizen, I can of course understand why a young, intelligent, good-looking person, perpetual delight to know, I might add, would feel that it is his duty to do something on behalf of his friend Jay. But what, exactly? That is the question. When you reach a certain age, you see that time is all we have, by which I mean moments like those springing deer this morning and watching your mother be born, and sitting at the dining room table here waiting for the phone to ring and announce that a certain baby you had been born, or that day when all of us hiked out at Point Lobos. That extremely loud seal, your sister's scarf drifting down, down to that black briny boulder, the replacement you so generously bought her in Monterey. How pleased you made her with your kindness. Those things were real. That is all one gets. All this other stuff is real only to the extent that it interferes with those moments. Now, you may say, I can hear you saying it, and I see the look on your face as you do, that this incident with Jay is an interference. I respect that. But as your grandfather, I beg you not to underestimate the power, danger of this moment. Perhaps I've not mentioned this to you. In the early days of this thing, I wrote two letters to the editor of the local rag, one overwrought, the other comic. Neither had any effect. Those who agreed with me, agreed with me. Those who did not remained unpersuaded. After a third attempt was rejected, I found myself pulled over up near the house for no reason I could discern. The cop, nice guy, just a kid really, asked what I did all day. Did I have any hobbies? I said, no. He said, some of us heard you like to type. I sat in my car, looking over at his large pale arm his face was the face of a kid. His arm, though, was the arm of a man. How would you know about that? I said. Have a good night, sir, he said. Stay off the computer. Good Lord, his stupidity and bulk there in the darkness, the metallic clanking from his belt area, 
the palpable certainty he seemed to feel regarding his cause, a cause I cannot begin, even at this late date, to get my head around her, view from within, so to speak. I do not want you anywhere near or under the sway of that sort of person ever. I feel here a need to address the last part of your email, which I want to assure you did not upset me or hurt my feelings. No. When you reach my age, and if you are lucky enough to have a grandson like you, stellar, you will know that nothing that grandson could say could ever hurt your feelings. And in fact, I am so touched that you thought to write me in your time of need and be so direct and even, I admit it, somewhat rough with me. Seen in retrospect, yes, I have regrets. There was a certain critical period. I see that now. During that period, your grandmother and I were working on every night a jigsaw puzzle each at the dining room table. I know you know well. We were planning to have the kitchen redone. We were in the midst of having the walls out there in the yard rebuilt at great expense. I was experiencing the first intimations of the dental issues I know you have heard so much, perhaps too much about. Every night as we sat across from each other doing those puzzles from the TV in the next room blared this litany of things that had never happened before, that we could never have imagined happening, that were now happening. And the only response from the TV pundits was a wry satirical smugness that assumed, as we assumed, that those things could and would soon be undone and that all would return to normal, that some adult or adults would arrive as they had always arrived in the past to set things right. It did not seem, and please destroy this letter after you have read it, that someone so clownish could disrupt something so noble and time-tested and seemingly strong something that had been with us literally every day of our lives. We had taken, in other words, a profound gift for granted. Did not know the gift was a fluke, a chimera, a wonderful accident of consensus and mutual understanding. Because this destruction was emanating from such an inept source, who seemed at the time merely comically thuggish, who seemed to know so little about that which he was disrupting, and because life was going on, and because every day he, they burst through some new gate of propriety, we soon found that no genuine outrage was available to us anymore. If you allow me a crude metaphor, as I'm sure you, the king of Las Bromas de Fartos, will. <laughs> a guy comes into a dinner party, takes a dump on the rug in the living room. The guests get excited, yell out in protest. He takes a second dump. The guests feel, well, yelling didn't help while some of them applaud his audacity. He takes a third dump on the table and still no one throws him out. At that point, the skies become the limit in terms of future dumps. So, although your grandmother and I during this critical period often said, you know, someone should arraign a march or those effing Republican senators, we soon grew weary of hearing ourselves saying these things and to avoid being old people emptily repeating ourselves Stopped saying those things and did our puzzles and so forth, waiting for the election. I'm speaking here of the third, not the fourth, of the sun, which being a total sham didn't hurt, surprise, as much. Post-election, doing new puzzles, mine a difficult sort of Catskill summer scene, noting those early pardons which, by the time they were granted, we'd been well prepared to expect, and then that deluge of pardons, each making way for the next, and the celebratory verbal nonsense accompanying the pardons, to which, again, we were by this time somewhat inured, and the targeting of judges and the incidents in Reno and Lowell and the investigations into pundits and the casting aside of even the expanded term limits, we still did not really believe that the thing was happening. Birds still burst out of the trees and so forth. I feel I am disappointing you. I just want to say that history, when it arrives, may not look as you expect based on the reading of history books. Things in there are always so clear, one knows exactly what one would have done. Your grandmother and I, and many others, would have had to be more extreme people than we were during that critical period, to have done whatever it was we should have been doing. 
Our lives had not prepared us for extremity, to mobilize, to be as focused, as energized, as I can see in retrospect we would have needed to be. We were not prepared to drop everything in defense of a system that was to us like oxygen, used constantly, never noted. We were spoiled, I think I'm trying to say, as were those on the other side, willing to tear it all down because they had been so thoroughly nourished by the vacuous plenty in which we all lived, a bountiful condition that allowed people to thrive and opine and swagger around like kings and queens while remaining ignorant of their own history. What would you have had me do? What would you have done? I know what you will say, you would have fought. But how? How would you have fought? Would you have called your senator? In those days you could still, at least, record your feeble message on a senator's answering machine without reprisal. But you might as well have been singing or whistling or passing wind in it for all the good it did. Well, we did that. We called. We wrote letters. Would you have given money to certain people running for office? We did that as well. Would you have marched? For some reason, there were suddenly no marches. Organized a march? Then and now, I did not and do not know how to arrange a march. I was still working full time. This dental thing had just begun. That rather occupies the mind. You know where we live. Would you have had me drive down to Watsonville and harangue the officials there? They were all in agreement with us at that time. Would you have armed yourself? I would not and will not, and I do not believe you would either. I hope not. By that, all is lost. Let me at the end return to the beginning and be blunt. I advise and implore you to stay out of this business with Jay. Your involvement will not help, especially if you don't know where they have taken her fed or state and may in fact hurt. I hope I do not offend if here I use the phrase empty gesture. Not only will Jay's situation be made worse, so might those of your mother, father, sister, grandmother, grandfather, etc. Part of the complication here is that you are not alone in this. I want you well. I want you someday to be an old fart yourself, writing a too long letter to a beloved grandson. In this world, we speak much of courage and not, I feel, enough about discretion, about caution. I know how that will sound to you. Let it be. I have lived this long and have the right. It occurs to me only now that you and Jay may have been more than just friends. If that is the case, that would, I know, must complicate the matter. I had a dream last night, a vivid dream of those days, of that critical pre-election period. I was sitting across from your grandmother, her at work on her puzzle, puppies and kittens, me on mine, gnomes and trees. And suddenly we saw, in a flash, things as they were. That is, we realized that this was the critical moment. We looked at each other across the table with such freshness, if I may say it that way, such love for each other and for our country, the country in which we lived our whole lives, the many roads, hills, lakes, malls, byways, villages we had moved and known and been around so freely. How precious and lovely it all seemed. Your grandmother stood with that decisiveness, I know you know. Let us think of what we must do, she said. Then I woke. There in bed, I felt for a brief instant that it was that time again and not this time. Lying there, I found myself wondering for the first time in a long while, not what should I have done, but what might I yet do? I came back to myself gradually, 
It was sad. A sad moment to be once again in a time and place where action was not possible. I wish with all my heart that we could have passed it all on to you intact. I do. That is now not to be. That regret I will take to my grave. Wisdom now amounts to making such intelligent accommodations as we can. I am not saying stick your head in the sand. Jay made a choice. She could have told all regarding G and M. She did not. I respect that. And yet, no one is calling on you to do anything. You are, in my view, doing so much good simply by rising in the morning, being as present as possible, keeping sanity alive in the world so that someday, when, if, this thing passes, the country may find its way back to normalcy with your help and with the help of those like you. But please know that I understand how hard it must be to stay silent and inactive if, in fact, Jay was more than just a friend. She is a lovely person, and I recall her crossing our yard with her particular grace and brio, swinging her car keys on that long chain, her dog, Whiskey, trotting along beside her. It is true, as you say. We have no idea what is going on with her in this new world of ours. And that must, yes, of course, weigh heavily on one's mind, especially if that relationship was intimate and might well, how could it not, create a feeling that one should act. I feel I have made my preference clear above. I say what follows not to encourage. We have money, not much, but some set aside. Should push come to shove. I'm finding it hard to advise you. I do not wish to disappoint nor lead you astray. With age, one becomes cautious. It is a curse. We love you so much. Please let us know what you are inclined to do as we find that this, you, is all that we can now think of. With love, much love, more than you can know. Jeepa. That was Stephen Colbert performing George Saunders' Love Letter. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This work is a perfect example of Saunders' craft. The evasive, encoded nature of the letter reflects the conditions of suspicion and secrecy that Saunders feels emanates from the government. Saunders doesn't hide from what's grotesque and inhumane about the world we've been living in or sometimes slowly stewing in. But as a writer, he also doesn't hide from the contradictions within people who are trying to get by even as those people might sometimes try to hide the contradictions from themselves. A George Saunders work is often a mixture of the outrageous and sneaky and morally true, and quite often, the beautiful. I had a chance to talk with Saunders about his work. You'll hear some of that interview at the end of this show. When we return, a Saunders classic from our archives considers heroism and doubt. You're listening to selected shorts recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We're devoting this hour of stories to our friend, the protean George Saunders. His characters often have trouble knowing just what to do, but your task is easier. 
If you miss the first half of the show, you can find us on your favorite podcasting platform or subscribe via our website, selectedshorts.org. While there, you can learn about the annual Selected Shorts Writing Contest. After hearing this next story, you'll want to try your hand. And in addition to listening to Selected Shorts at home, we would love you to join us on the road as we travel all across America. This season brings us from New Jersey to Connecticut, from New York to Nevada, and up and down the coast of California. And, of course, our yearly pilgrimage to the Dallas Museum of Art. Join us and experience the magic of fiction, one short story at a time, live and in person. Visit our website at selectedshorts.org for more information. We're celebrating the work of our literary friend and a literary giant, George Saunders. Our first story was from a recent evening with him at our home theater, Symphony Space. But this next one, The Falls, is a favorite from our vault. One of the things that makes Saunders such a master of the form is how quickly he can convey character. In The Falls, all we need is one man's anxious inner monologue in which he worries about worrying and another man's obsessive rehearsal of overripe lines from his unwritten great literary work to know that these are flawed men. But in an instant, as so often in Saunders' works, there's a chance for them to become something more, maybe something better than they are. The Falls is read by another great friend of Selected Shorts, the late René Aubergenois, who suggested the piece to Shorts' founder, Isaiah Sheffer, after reading it in The New Yorker. Aubergenois' long career resulted in award-winning Broadway, television, and film work, including Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, and M.A.S.H. Here he is with The Falls. Morse found it nerve-wracking to cross the St. Jude grounds just as the school was being dismissed because he felt that if he smiled at the uniformed Catholic children, they might think he was a wacko or pervert. And if he didn't smile, they might think he was an old grouch made bitter by the world, which surely he felt by certain yardsticks he was. Sometimes he wasn't entirely sure that he wasn't even a wacko of sorts, although certainly he wasn't a pervert. Of that he was certain, or relatively certain. (laughs) Being overly certain he was relatively sure was what eventually made one a wacko. (laughs) So humility was the thing, he thought, arranging his face into what he thought would pass for the expression of a man thinking fondly of his own youth, a face devoid of wackiness or perversion. (laughs) Humility was the thing. The school sat among maples on a hillside that sloped down to the wide Taganic River, which narrowed and picked up speed and crashed over Bryce Falls a mile downstream near Morse's small rental house, his embarrassingly small rental house, actually, which nevertheless was the best he could do and for which he knew he should be grateful, although at times he wasn't a bit grateful and wondered where he'd gone wrong, although at other times he was quite pleased with the crooked little blue shack covered with peeling lead paint and felt great pity for the poor stiffs renting hazardous holes even smaller than his hazardous hole, which was how he felt now as he came down into the bright sunlight and continued his pleasant walk home along the green river lined with expensive mansions whose owners he deeply resented. (laughs) Morse was tall and thin and as gray and sepulchral as a church about to be condemned. His pants were too short and his face periodically broke into a tense involuntary grin that quickly receded as if he had just suffered a sharp pain. At work, he was known to punctuate his conversations with brief wild laughs and gusts of inchoate enthusiasm and subsequent embarrassment expressed by a sudden plunging of his hands into his pockets, after which he would yank his hands out of his pockets, too ashamed of his own shame to stand there merely grimacing for even an instant longer. (laughs) From behind him, on the path, came a series of arrhythmic whacking steps. He glanced back to find Aldo Cummings, an odd duck who, though nearly 40, still lived with his mother. Cummings didn't work and had his bangs cut straight across and wore gym shorts, even in the dead of winter. (laughs) Morse hoped Cummings wouldn't collar him. 
When Cummings didn't collar him, and in fact passed by without even returning his nervous, self-effacing grin, Morse felt guilty for having suspected Cummings of wanting to collar him, then miffed that Cummings, who collared even the city hall cleaning staff, hadn't tried to collar him. Had he done something to offend Cummings? It worried him that Cummings might not like him, and it worried him that he was worried about whether or not Cummings liked him. Was he some kind of worrywart? It worried him. Why should he be worried when all he was doing was going home to enjoy his beautiful children without a care in the world? Although, on the other hand, there was Robert's piano recital, which was sure to be a disaster since Robert never practiced and they had no piano and weren't even sure where or when the recital was. And Annie, God bless her, had eaten the cardboard keyboard he'd made for Robert to practice on. When he got home, he would make Robert a new cardboard keyboard and beg him to practice. He might even order him to practice. He might even order him to make his own cardboard keyboard, then practice. Although this was unlikely because when he became forceful with Robert, Robert blubbered and Morse loved Robert so much he couldn't stand to see him blubbering. Although if he didn't become forceful with Robert, Robert tended to lie on his bed with his baseball glove over his face. Good God, but life could be less than easy. Not that he was unaware that it could certainly be a lot worse, but to go about in such a state, pulse high, face red, worried, sick, that someone would notice how nervous one was was certainly less than ideal, and he felt sure that his body was secreting all kinds of harmful chemicals, and <laughs> that the more he worried about the harmful chemicals, the faster they were pouring out of wherever it was they came from. When he got home, he would sit on the steps and enjoy a few minutes of centered breathing while reciting his mantra, which was, calm down, calm down, <laughs> before the kids came running out and grabbed his legs and sometimes even bit him quite hard in their excitement. <laughs> and Ruth came out to remind him in an angry tone that he wasn't the only one who'd worked all day. And as he walked, he gazed out at the beautiful Tiganic in an effort to absorb something of her serenity but instead found himself obsessing about the faulty latch on the gate, which theoretically could allow Annie to toddle out of the yard and into the river, and he pictured himself weeping on the shore, and to eradicate this thought, started manically whistling the stars and stripes forever while slapping his hands against his side. <laughs> Cummings bobbed past the restored gristmill, pleased at having so decisively snubbed Morse. A smug member of the power elite in this conspiratorial village, one of the league of oppressive oppressors who wouldn't know the lot of the struggling artist if a lot of the struggling artist came up with great and beleaguered dignity and bit him on the polyester. <laughs> Over the Pine Street Bridge was a fat cloud. To an interviewer in his head, Cummings said, he felt the possible rain made the fine, bright day even finer and brighter because of the possibility of its loss. <laughs> the possibility of its ephemeral loss. The ephemeral loss of the day to the fleeting passages of time. <laughs> Preening time. Preening nascent time. <laughs> the blackguard. Time made wastrels of us all, did it not, with its gaunt cheeks and its tombly reverberations and its admonishing glances with bony fingers. Bony fingers pointed as if in admonishment, as if to say, I admonish you to recall your own eventual nascent death, human, which being on its way is forthcoming. <laughs> forthcoming mortal coil, and don't think its ghastly pall won't settle on your furrowed brow pronto once I select your fated number from my very dusty book with this selfsame bony finger with which I'm pointing at you now, you vanity of vanities, you luster, you shirker of duties, as you shuffle after your worldly pleasure centers. Oh, this was some good stuff. Ah, if only he could remember it until he got home. He thought with longing ardor of his blank yellow pad. He thought. He thought with longing ardor of his blank yellow pad on which this selfsame day his fame would be wrought. No, on which this selfsame day the first meager scrawlings which would presage his nascent burgeoning fame would be wrought, or rather writ, 
And someday, someone would dig up his yellow pad and virtually cry Eureka when they realized what a teeming fragment of minutia, and yet crucial minutia, had been found. Oh, oh life was good, wasn't it? When life afforded, as it did now, the opportunity to walk in the sun, having thoughts which might someday prove great before the rain, the humbling rain, the rain which made equals of us all, which flattened us all into ephemeral, nascent pulp before that manic steamroller with bony fingers. Death Although the steamroller idea was admittedly kind of lame and did no justice to the otherwise pap and drang of his emittings, which objectively he felt were becoming more furrowed and nascent with every stroll he took, <laughs> as he refined his worldview, put forth a sort of verbal fire, the reviewer would write, a sort of verbal fire this reviewer has not pervaded in a fur piece, a verbal brush fire which sweeps across the hackneyed plain of contemporary verse towards the tidy cottage of conventionality, overtaking and raising it like anything. <laughs> and wouldn't all kinds of literary women in short black jackets want to meet and greet him then? <laughs> Ah, in the future, he must always remember to bring his pad everywhere. Now, the town had spent a mint on the riverfront, and now the burbling, smashing Taganic ran past a nail salon in a restored grist mill and a cafe in a former coal tower and a quaint public square where some high school boys with odd haircuts were trying to kick a soccer ball into the partly open window of a parked colt with a joy so belligerent and obnoxious that it seemed they believed themselves the first boys ever to walk the face of the earth, which Morse found worrisome. What if Annie grew up and brought one of these freaks home? Well, not one of these exact freaks, of course, since they were approximately 15 years her senior, although it was possible that at 20 she could bring home one of these exact freaks, who would then be approximately 35 albeit over Morse's dead body, although in his heart he knew he wouldn't make a stink about it even if she did bring home one of the freaky snots who had just succeeded in kicking the ball into the colt and were now jumping around joyfully, bumping their bare chests together while grunting like walruses. <laughs> and in fact, he knew perfectly well that rather than expel the 35-year-old freak from his home, he would likely offer him coffee or a soft drink in an attempt to dissuade him from corrupting Annie, who, for God's sakes, was just a baby, because Morse knew very well the kind of man he was at heart, timid of conflict, conciliatory to a fault, pathetically gullible. And with a pang, he remembered Len Beck, whose senior year had tricked him into painting his ass blue. <laughs> If there had actually been a secret blue actors club, I mean, if the painting had in fact been required for membership, it would have been bad enough. But to find out on the eve of one's prom that one had painted one's blue simply for the amusement of a clique of unfeeling swimmers who subsequently supplied certain photographs to one's prom date, that was too much. And he had been glad, quite glad actually, at least at first, when Beck, drunk, had tried and failed to swim to Foley's snag and been swept over the falls in the dark of night. The great tragedy of their senior year, a tragedy that had mercifully eclipsed Morse's blue in the class's collective memory. Two red-headed girls sailed by in a green canoe drifting with the current. They yelled something to him and he waved. Had they yelled something insulting? <laughs> Certainly it was possible. Certainly today's children had no respect for authority, although one had to admit there was always Ben Akbar, their neighbor, a little Pakistani genius who sometimes made Morse look askance at Robert. Ben was an all-state cellist on the wrestling team who was unfailingly sweet to smaller kids and toll-painted and could do a one-handed push-up. Ah, Ben Schmen. Morse thought ten Bens weren't worth a single Robert although he couldn't think of one area in which Robert was a superior or even equal to Ben, 
the little smarty pants, although certainly he had nothing against Ben, Ben being a mere boy. But if Ben thought for a minute that his being more accomplished and friendly and talented than Robert somehow entitled him to lord it over Robert, Ben had another thing coming. Not that Ben had ever actually lorded it over Robert. On the contrary, Robert often lorded it over Ben. <laughs> or tried to, although he always failed because Ben was too sharp to be taken in by a little con man like Robert. <laughs> and Morse's face reddened at the realization that he had just characterized his own son as a con man. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Oh, could life be a torture? <sighs> could life ever force a fellow into a strange, dark place from which he found himself doing graceless, unforgivable things like casting aspersions on his beloved firstborn? <sighs> if only he could escape Blast Corp and do something significant, such as discovering a critical vaccine. But it was too late. And he had never been good at biology and, in fact, had flunked it twice. But some kind of moment in the sun would certainly not be unwelcome. If only he could be a tortured prisoner of war who not only refused to talk, but led the other prisoners in rousing hymns at great personal risk. If only he could witness an actual miracle or, or save the president from an assassin or win the lotto and give it all to charity. If only he could be part of some great historical event like the codgers he saw on PBS who had been slugged in the Haymarket riot or known Medgar Evers or lost beatific mothers on the Titanic. <sighs> His childhood dreams had been so bright he had hoped for so much it couldn't be true that he was a nobody. Although on the other hand, what kind of somebody spends the best years of his life swearing at a photocopier? Not that he was complaining, not that he was unaware. He had plenty to be thankful for. He loved his children. He loved the way Ruth looked in bed by candlelight when he had wedged the laundry basket against the door that wouldn't shut because the house was settling alarmingly. Loved the face she made when he entered her. Loved the way she made light of the blue ass story. Although he didn't particularly love the way she sometimes trotted it out when they were fighting. For example, on the dreadful night when the piano had been repossessed, or the way she blamed his passivity for their poverty within earshot of the kids, or the fact that at the height of her infatuation with Robert's karate instructor, Master Lee, she had been dragging Robert to class as often as six times a week, the poor little exhausted guy. But the point was, in spite of certain difficulties, he truly loved Ruth. So what if their bodies were failing and fattening and they undressed in the dark and Robert admired strapping athletes on television while looking askance at Morse's rounded, pimpled back? It didn't matter, because someday when Robert had a rounded, pimple back of his own, he would appreciate his father who had subjugated his petty personal desires for the good of his family, although God willing, Robert would have a decent career by then and could afford to join a gym and see a dermatologist. <laughs> And Morse stopped in his tracks, wondering what in the world two little girls were doing alone in a canoe speeding toward the falls, apparently oarless. Cummings walked along, gazing into a mythic, dusky, arboreal wood that put him in mind of the archetypal vision he had numbered 114 in his book of archetypal visions on which mom, that nitwit, had recently spilled grape pop. Vision 114 concerned standing on the edge of an ancient, dense wood at twilight, with the safe harbor of one's abode behind, and the deep wild ahead, replete with dark, fearsome bears looming from albeit dingy covens. <laughs> what would that twitching, nervous, wage-slave Morse think if he were to dip his dim brow into the heady brew that was the archetypal visions? <laughs> Morse. <laughs> Cummings thought, I'm glad I'm not Morse, a dullard in corporate pants, trudging home to his threadbare brats in the gathering loam, born like the rest of his ilk with their feet of clay thrust down the maw of conventionality, content to cheerfully work lemming-like in moribund cubicles, while comparing their stocks and bonds between bouts of tedious lawn mowing, then chortling while holding their suckling brats to the Nintendo breast. That was a powerful image. <laughs> 
upcoming thought, one that he might develop some brooding night into a Herculean prome that some Hollywood smoothie would eat like a hot cake so he could buy mom a Lexus and go with someone leggy and blousy to Paris after taking time to build up his body with arm curls so as to captivate her physically as well as mentally. And in Paris, the leggy girl in perhaps tight leather pants would sit on an old-time bed with a beautiful shawl or blanket around her shoulders and gaze at him with doe eyes as he stood on the balcony brooding about the Parisian rain and so forth. <laughs> and wouldn't Morse and his ilk stew in considerable juice when he sent home a postcard just to be nice? And wouldn't the village fall before him on repentant knees when T-shirts imprinted with his hard-won visage, his heraldic leonine visage, one might say, were available to all at the five and dime, and he held court on the porch in a white Whitmanesque suit while Mom hovered behind him, getting everything wrong about his work and proffering inane snacks to his manifold admirers? And wouldn't revenge be sweet when such former football players as Ned Wentz began and begging him for lessons in the sonnet. And all that was required for these things to come to pass was some paper and pens and a quixotic, blathering talent the likes of which would not be seen, the critics would write, all of which he had in spades. And he rounded the last bend before the falls, euphoric with his own possibilities, and saw a canoe the color of summer leaves ram the steep upstream wall of the snag. The girls inside were thrown forward and shrieked with open mouths over frothing waves that would not let them be heard as the boat slit open along some kind of seam and began taking on water in doomful, fast quantities. Cummings stood, stunned, his body electrified, hairs standing up on the back of his craning neck, thinking, I must do something, their faces are bloody, but what, such fast cold water. Still, I must do something. And he stumbled over the berm, uncertainly looking for help, but finding only a farm field of tall, dry corn. Morse began to run. In all probability, this was silly. In all probability, the girls were safe on shore, or if not, help was already on its way, although certainly it was possible that the girls were not safe on shore, and help was not on its way. And in fact, it was even possible that the help that was on its way was him, which was worrisome, <laughs> because he had never been good under pressure, and in a crisis often stood mentally debating possible options with his mouth hanging open. Come to think of it, it was possible, even probable, that the boat had already gone over the falls or hit the snag. He remembered the crew of the barge, Fat Chance, rescued via rope bridge in the early Carter years. He hoped several sweaty, decisive men were already on the scene and that one of them would send him off to make a phone call. Although, what if on the way he forgot the phone number and had to go back and ask the sweaty, decisive man to re repeat it? And what if this failure got back to Ruth and she was filled with shame and divorced him and forbade him to see the kids who didn't want to see him anyway because he was such a panicky screw-up. This was certainly not positive thinking. This certainly was an example of predestining failure via negativity because who, who could tell? Maybe he would stand in line assisting the decisive men and incur a nasty rope burn and go home a hero wearing a bandage which might cause Ruth to regard him in a more favorable sexual light and they would stay up all night celebrating his new manhood and exchanging sweet words between bouts of energetic lovemaking, although what kind of thing was that to be thinking at a time like this with <laughs> children's lives at stake? He was bad, that was for sure. There wasn't an earnest bone in his body. Other people were simpler and looked at the world with clearer eyes, but he, he was self-absorbed and insincere and mucked everything up, and he hoped this wasn't one more thing he was destined to muck up because mucking up a rescue was altogether different from forgetting to mail out the invitations to your son's birthday party, which he had recently done, although certainly they had spent a small fortune rectifying the situation, stopping just short of putting an actual pony on visa. But the point was, this was serious and he had to bear down. And throwing his thin legs out ahead of him, awkwardly bent at the waist, shirt tails trailing behind and bum knee hurting, he remonstrated with himself to put aside all self-doubt and negativity and prepare to assist the decisive men in whatever way he could once he had rounded the bend and assessed the situation. But when he rounded the bend and assessed the situation, he found no rope bridge or decisive men, only a canoe coming apart at the base of the snag and two small girls in matching sweaters trying to bail with a bucket. 
What to do? This was a shocker. Go for help, sprint to the outlet mall and call 911 from Knife World. There was no time. The canoe was sinking before his eyes. The girls would be drowned before he reached Route 8. Could one swim to the snag? Certainly one could not. No one ever had. Was he a good swimmer? He was mediocre at best. Therefore, he would have to run for help. But running was futile because there was no time. He had just decided that, and swimming was out of the question. Therefore, the girls would die. They were basically dead. Although, that, that couldn't be. That was too sad. What would become of the mother who this morning had dressed them in matching sweaters? How could she cope? Soon her girls would be nude and bruised and dead on a table. It was unthinkable. He thought of Robert, nude and bruised and dead on a table. What to do? He, he fiercely wished himself elsewhere. The girls saw him now and with their hands appeared to be trying to explain that they would be dead soon. My God! Did they think he was blind? Did they think he was stupid? Was he their father? Did they think he was Christ? They were dead. They were frantic, calling out to him, but they were dead. Dead as the ancient dead, and he was alive. He was needed at home. It was a no-brainer. No one could possibly blame him for this one. And making a low sound of despair in his throat, he kicked off his loafers and threw his long, ugly body out across the water. René Aubergenois performed The Falls by George Saunders. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Let's say it again, Saunders is a master. And what he's a master of is grasping the muddled, untidy, imperfect bits of humanity and shaping them into something more, something capable of self-knowledge and self-sacrifice. And in confronting in fiction what in life is a painful fact, many stories, many lives, don't have clear endings. This is a kind of interior piece, Two men moseying along, thinking their very different thoughts, letting the strands go where they will, into self-loathing or grandiosity or low-grade unhappiness that can resemble what we've come to call the human condition. But then, like a piercing arrow, exteriority interrupts the interiority. And it tries a couple of times to truly penetrate. It's as if Saunders is showing us the way the mind works, the way it refuses to see what it isn't ready to see, In this case, two girls in a canoe, screaming their heads off. How much clearer does that image have to be? Well, I guess it has to be clear enough to break through the skull and the brain, leaving the interior world behind and making a character go at the very last minute from absorption into action, becoming the closest we're ever going to get to a George Saunders superhero. Which is close enough for me. Plus, he can still wear a big S on his outfit. The story was originally published in 1996, so pre-mobile phone, a tool that even the hapless Morse might have been able to put to good use. I've been a Saunders fan for years and was really happy to spend some lovely time with him at the Sydney Writers' Festival in 2019, back before everything shut down for a while. I still think fondly about our conversation on the other side of the world and was delighted to pick it up a few years later, maybe not exactly where we left off, and not in person this time, and without the possibility of Marmite on the table— But let's call it fake in-person, with each of us framed in a small box on our screen, smiling or squinting at each other as we once again began to talk. You know, it was great to hear your stories on Selected Shorts, in particular to hear two stories in a row, a kind of like a cornucopia of George Saunders. And I was thinking about how they're both kind of very interested in the tensions between action and inaction. I mean, is that something you were aware of in either one or thinking of them together? Well, it's something I'm <laughs> yeah, always living with. You know, from the time I was a little kid, I had a kind of a, a weird combination of strong feelings about things and some kind of a neurotic lockup. Like I would have strong feelings and then be able to see both sides of a thing at the same time. And that often kind of froze me a little bit into more of an observer role, which I think you can sort of see in both of those stories. Yeah. And maybe that's what a lot of fiction is about, right? The tensions between those two. It can sure be fruitful. You know, I get a lot of mileage and a lot of fun out of the internal monologue, the kind of monkey mind narrative. And so I always feel like in a way that's when you're showing a character thinking, 
you're kind of winding up the machine a little bit. You're filling the character with potential energy. Yeah. And then it doesn't take much. You put anything in front of that person, it becomes plot, you know. So if I try to think of making something happen in a story in the abstract, it's really hard. But once you prime a person with feelings or even biases or unfulfilled longing or something, then almost anything that happens to them will, will become sort of a, an off-ramp for those pent-up feelings, I guess. I feel the same way, and I feel that way about novels. I'm always surprised when people tell me that they sort of plot out their novels without having interrogated the character first. Like, how do you know that person yeah. would do those things? So for you, how does that process work? Is there a period of writing without plot where you're just yeah. inhabiting a character's mind? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you have a similar thing with a story. It's a kind of freedom or play where you're not worrying about what is it? What am I trying to say? Yes. You have a little faith that that will turn into saying something. Do you have a similar thing? A hundred percent. And in fact, you know, if it feels like the longer I can abide in that state, the better the final thing is. As soon as I start going, oh, plot, you know, or oh, I can see a way out of this. I always have to kind of slow myself down because that's usually an off-ramp to a little bit of a disaster. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I know what you're talking about. And it's a kind of trust. Yes. I always feel kind of embarrassed saying this, but the first impulse that I trust is some kind of fun. In other words, if I'm starting a sentence, do I have any opinions about how I might want it to sound? Do I have a preferred mode that I'm in here that will guide me as I try to make this bigger thing? Well, for instance, with your story, The Falls, now, that story was published in 1996. Do you remember the experience of actually writing it? I do. That one was sort of a rebellion. I've written my first book, Civil Warland, all at work. And they're all pretty much similar stories. They're in first person, present tense, kind of futuristic. There's a certain tone that I both learned to do and then got trapped in a little bit during that six or seven year period. So I was trying to find a way out. So I just started giving myself the assignment of writing these little kind of comic monologues, just every day a couple, you know. So Morse came out of one of those. He was sort of my imitation of my own mind, you know, that kind of worry, neurotic, am I doing everything wrong, or, you know. And then on another day, I wrote one that turned out to be Cummings. But at that point, they were just two separate, really, experiments. I had no idea of putting them in the same story. But then at some point, I took some time off from writing, came back and saw those two fragments. And I thought, oh, God, I have no idea what to do. Let me just throw them in the same story. That was exactly what we're talking about, because I had no idea where that could possibly go. It was just two monologues juxtaposed, really, at that point. I love that feeling when you don't know quite enough. There's a little feeling of kind of ornery excitement like oh what if i put that with that huh that's a tough one i want to take a little side trip here because i want to talk about a love letter and that story is from 2020 so it's from a very different place in the world and it's from you as an older writer yeah that was a real exception to a rule that i've been pronouncing for years which is don't write politics right at this point i turned 64 this week i'm like well Whatever was hidden behind those rules, you better go get that because one, you don't have much time left and two, your talent is not infinite. So in this case, I just thought, man, this political stuff is driving me nuts. I can't believe I'm living through this period. This is before the last election. And I just thought, all right, I'm going to type some of that up because it bothers me. And I guess at some level, I was thinking, if you type something that's true for you, one, there's going to be some power in it, just rhetorically. If you say what's really on your mind, it's going to be powerful. Two, I can always attribute it to somebody. And three, another version of two, if I say it sincerely, a story can form around it. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the experience with having Stephen Colbert read your work. You know, it's always funny when someone else is reading your work and you're sitting there. And about a third of the way through, I thought, oh, my God, this story is good, you know, which I don't normally think about my own work. The way he was inhabiting it, line by line, as if he was that person. He was discovering nuances in every line that were communicating themselves to me in a totally fresh way. George, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a real joy. It's always such a pleasure, Mick. Thank you. That was the writer George Saunders. It was great to get to know a bit more about the mind that produced the two powerful stories on this show, both about hope and despair and the heroically fallible nature of us. To hear a longer version of our talk, head to the episodes page on selectedshorts.org, where you'll find this and other bonus content we love but couldn't squeeze into our show. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. (laughs) 
Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>